this morning in the Mass, always. Your words to us um, The great call this morning um, from the Old Testament was for justice. Um, I think it was asking us to to, to not sin, um, to rebuke those who do, and to forgive, to um, be completely forgiven, forgiving in what we do, so that when the justice has been given, that we let the, we let it go, that we genuinely do forgive. So it was once again a, um, a reading showing Christ um, calling us to justice, to take our sins and the sins of others seriously, and to put them away. To admonish each other and and to forgive, help each of us to do that in everything we do. I ask a blessing on the work that we're doing here. Help us to open our minds and our hearts um, to learn to read well. It's not easy for any of us. We misread so often, um, and to bl- uh, bring you more completely to all that we do, particularly with each other. Ask a best um, a blessing for is it Joanna? Joanne. Joanne. Um, watch over her, uh, protect her, whatever it is she's looking at, and if there's a difficulty here, let it be an opening um, um, for her and Mary Jane. Um, sometimes, sometimes difficulties make an opening for us with each other that or hard otherwise, um, or to turn to Mary Jane, Mary Jane to her, all of us with each other. I also ask a special blessing on Bob and Marcy, particularly Bob, and um, express a prayer of thanksgiving for um, Jenny and Carl, Carl for getting a hold of Bob, and um, I know Bob's heart had to be warmed by that. for the way in which we look out after each other. And we are grateful um, that whatever spirit leads us to do that be strengthened in the work that we do together. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Carl, I meant to say that before. I hope you don't mind my getting it in prayer. Um, when I heard that, I was really grateful to you because I know it must have meant a lot for Bob. Um, Anyway, are these on God? Yes. No, no. I'm going to read um, a a section from Proverbs. Um, You don't. You don't have. I think it's included in the packet on the Psalms, but don't, don't. don't, don't bother with it, I'll just read it. I love this passage, and I don't know if any of you have given it much attention. 
if you haven't, you should look at it. It's the only thing that I'm aware of in the, in the whole Bible, even outside of Revelation, or including Revelation, that deals with the mystery of the Trinity. So it's included in Proverbs, and it describes a situation in time. So it's, it's like everything else in the Old Testament, because everything else in the Old Testament happens in time. Even Genesis is it's after creation. So even though Gen- the beginning of Genesis is treated as mythic, still in time as we know it, even if it's got a mythic quality to it. But here in Proverbs, the, the prophet is describing this moment <laughs> like it's in time, but he, what he's describing occurs before everything is created in time. So it's one, to me, it's one of the most beautiful descriptions of the Trinity, the Word, um, the Son, before creation. So when you hear it, if you've not thought about it that way, just give it, hold on to that thought that what he's describing is the joy of, of um, <laughs> this creation, this thing, this person who was there before all things. So one of the lines talks about it, the world being the um, playing field, where he played in the fields of the Lord. Um, I think this is one of the most perfect descriptions of the word before creation, before the word created things, and the joy he took in everything. So just hold that in your mind while you hear it. You've not thought about this passage that way. You might hold on to that thought when you do. Proverbs, this is from Proverbs 8, verses 22-31. The Lord begot me, the beginning of his works, the forerunner of his deeds of long ago. From of old I was formed at the first before the earth. When there were no deeps, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains or springs of water, before the mountains were settled into place, before the hills, I was brought forth. When the earth and the fields were not yet made, or the first clods of the world, when he established the heavens, there was I. When he marked out the vault over the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he fixed fast the springs of the deep, when he set for the, when he set for the sea its limit, so that the water should not transgress his command, when he fixed the foundations of the earth, then why was I beside him as an artisan? I was his delight day by day, playing before him all the while, playing over the whole of his earth, having my delight with human beings. Some people think that the, the prophet is referring to wisdom, the wisdom of God before creation. He begot this wisdom. So it's as if it's expressing the joy of wisdom, God's wisdom. You can also think of it as um, the Word, um, that the Word was wisdom, and he's taking delight, contemplating what's in God's mind before it's going to be created. Um, um, there he was, day by day, playing, playing in the fields of the Lord. The lovely. It's a lovely verse. Okay, this is going to be very, very quickly, 
if, if I can. I want to just quickly go over some of the things that we've been doing um, to get us to Anthony Cleopatra tonight. Um, so I've got a number of things just to look at and review. One of them. Um, in the last several weeks, one of the questions that I was um, asking of everybody is if we could find Christ in any of the works that we read. Um, because my concern is that we not get caught, in, caught up in literature as literature, that, um, that we hold on to our purpose, that, and we're trying to move outside of an ecclesial world, inside of the church with the rubrics of the church, the iconography, the, the, the liturgy, all of that, to see if we couldn't find Christ in the world. That's, that's been our purpose all along. And sometimes we can get so focused on literature and lose sight of that question, I didn't want to lose sight of it. So the question that I've been pressing the last couple of weeks is, can we find Christ at work or God at work in what we've been reading? One of the things that I've suggested is that every work implicitly um, reflects the goodness of God. Tragedy or comedy, it doesn't matter. Because every work deals with a completed action. Um, comedy and tragedy both deal with some disorder, some injustice, and the correction of it, and the answering of it. So that every work we've read, tragedy and comic, tragedy and comedy, tragic and comic, have, um, have answered a wrong and e either led us out on a joy in comedy or a refounding, a renewal in tragedy. Every tragedy answers a wrong, an evil, and um, prepares us for a new order. So every, even tragedy involves a cleansing, a catharsis, a purifying, that um, we, we understand is the beginning of doing something new. So even tragedies imply a good. And I tried to bring that home by saying, cut any of the works off in half. Stop in, you know, cut off Merchant of Venice or All's Well, or even Othello, midpoint, pick an arbitrary point. And all of us would be left with the same feeling. We'd be frustrated and ask ourselves, what for? Why read it? There'd be no point to it. Every play, offers us a completed action. It shows a goodness in the world. A poet is imitating. He's offering us that. So even if it deals with tragic consequences, it's still showing a good. Okay? So implicitly, every, every play suggests a, a goodness in the order of creation. Some goodness is at work. Remember that phrase, bonum est diffusum. Goodness is diffusive. It's working everywhere. It's, it's very Boethian. There is no bad fortune. So the poet doing what Shakespeare does and what Chaucer does is showing us this goodness in the world. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a completed action. We'd be cut off mid-story and um, we'd shake our heads and wonder what in the world's going on. But there are also other things. There are figures who are doing amazing things. Portia, Helena, um, even Othello, um, and Desdemona in a tragedy. So I was suggesting that Portia is a um, Christ figure. She reflects him. She images him. She is an image of harmony, poetry, wisdom at work in the world. So is Helena. And I was suggesting, even last time, and I know there was some um, difficulties with this. It's, it's 
It's not an easy play to deal with. That even Othello and Desdemona uh, may figure something Christ-like in them. Um, and one of the th some of the things that I ask everybody to think about in relating to Othello is that, remember, he, he did not want vengeance. He wanted justice. When he was ready to kill Desdemona and he asked her before he set out to kill her if she'd confessed, he made it clear that he did not want her damned. So he wasn't after vengeance. He wanted her saved. What he wanted was justice. And everything he did, he did in the belief... Even if it was mistaken, he did it in the belief that what he was doing was just. He believed in the resurrection, or he wouldn't have said to Desdemona, make sure you confess. He did not want to damn her. He had that moment of recognition, which is one of the traits of a tragedy, and he has that um, long appeal um, that everybody recognized what he was doing when he took himself, the Turk, in him and killed it. Um, so I've suggested all along that poetry is always helping us to see more deeply, making it harder for us to make black-white judgments about what we're doing because it's so easy for all of us to do that. Um, I, I, I recall the, uh, the, the sinner on the cross, to whom Christ said, this night um, I will see you in paradise, and the two men in the temple. We could go back, even more importantly, we could go back to Socrates because remember, um, if, we, if we hold on to the cave imagery, Socrates made it clear that um, it was only the person who began to question things that had a reason for getting out of the cave. Because so long as he believed that he had all the answers, he was stuck. He would make all of his decisions based on appearance. He would not get below appearances. He was killed. Um, people, people misread him, absolutely misread him, or they would have never killed him. Socrates was a good man. Um, but what he was doing challenged the way everybody believed, all of their beliefs. Christ did the same thing and he was killed. Um, Thomas More, to bring this closer to home, um, opposed the king and was executed. And a whole Catholic nation, an entire Catholic nation, caved. Um, he, didn't, I mean, he didn't have the support. People were trying to do everything they could to hold on to their lives. So. So we've got lots of examples of misreading. It's something um, we're all given to. Um, it seems to me one of the things that poetry is doing for us is helping us, particularly with the good poets, is learn to see more deeply underneath surfaces. Um, so this, this habit of misreading is something we bring to our reading. Another principle that I've been um, pushing at everybody is we can't, we can't learn to make good judgments if we don't learn to see holes. The too often we see things in parts, we'll take a part. It's like a Christian taking a passage from the Bible and using that passage to justify all sorts of things. I mean, we should be skeptical about any, any of the decisions we make, any of the judgments we make concerning religious matters unless we've really read the whole Bible and take it in. I'm always stunned when we, when we go to Mass, when I come out thinking about it, we, we, I can't think of an occasion when it's not true. We never go to Mass and not hear an Old Testament reading and a New Testament. Always. Always. And the emphasis on the Old Testament is always justice. Almost always justice. The New Testament is justice and mercy. Both. And I've suggested it's really important that we hold on to that because um, 
it, it just seems to me we don't read Christ well if we see him in any way undermining the Father. Because the three were one in eternity, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's the Word who becomes the Son. It's just impossible to think about the Son doing anything to put himself at odds with the Father. He wouldn't undo his laws. He wouldn't undermine them. So part of our work is to learn to see how, the, um, how what Christ did is in keeping with what the Father was asking to bring those two testaments together in the way that we read. Um, we talked about the importance of the tragic paradigm. Remember that the, that the, three, the three crucial principles for Aristotle were the peripatia, Peripatia and ignore the cis and the catharsis. It's absolutely crucial to hold on to those. I gave the example last week, I think from Joyce, where Joyce said that um, a piece of glass had shattered and, a, and, a, um, and one of the pieces broke off and pierced a young woman's heart as she was driving by. And the journalist described that as a tragic accident. And Joyce said, no, it wasn't a tragic, I and mean, it, was, it was an awful thing. Tragedy in, in the literary world means a completed action. It doesn't mean a bad thing happening. Because lots of bad things happen in the world, but they don't constitute a tragic action. In tragedy, the tragic action, always, the good tragedies always pass through a turn, a peripatia. And it's during that turn that the tragic hero has a moment of recognition where he sees his wrong. It can be Oedipus Rex at the beginning of things when Oedipus saw that he was the cause of the plague in Thebes and, and blinds himself. Um, I mean, set that next to it though. In, in, in lots of ways the two line up with each other. Um, Oedipus blinded himself. He gouged out his eyes. In some ways that corresponds to Othello's taking punishment on himself. And remember, it, I don't think anybody has a question that Iago's going to hell. I, I hope nobody does. I mean, I, I, at least I don't. I can, I can be sound enough in that judgment. It's just difficult for me to see Othello and Iago ending up in the same place. Othello's of, a, of another order. He sees his sin. He, he exemplifies in the best way a tragic hero. He sees the depths of his wrong. He has some sense that it might be extenuated in a court of law, he takes his life. Um, um, Oedipus gouged his eyes. That moment of recognition always opens up a whole different perspective and depths on the world. Whoever that tragic hero is, it can be Oedipus, it can be Othello, it can be Lear, it can be Hamlet. That person reaches a point where he suddenly realizes he's not seen the world, except in some superficial way, and he's taken to depths, and it changes him. Um, the contention that I'm going to make here in a Christian world is that anybody who passes through that kind of an experience, who becomes aware of his own sins, will change the way he relates to the world. Um, in some ways it may make him more severe, like Christ. In some ways it will certainly make him more merciful because he carries a sense of his own sins. Oedipus, Oedipus stood in a black-white world. He was ready to condemn everybody because he was right. He was the one who had all the answers for everything until he discovered that he didn't, and then he realizes everything he saw was wrong. 
So a tragic action always involves an insight. It, it, it gives us a different perspective on the world from the one in which we've been living through most of the tragedy until that point. Um, all of the plays we read up until last week were on the threshold of modernity, Venice and the Paris of All's Well. And my suggestion was that, I mean, the reason for choosing it was that um, every one of them opened on a problem that's peculiar to us. The modern rationalistic regime, um, the regime in which men depends more on his powers of reason than on faith or tradition, all those things are being lost in those worlds. Um, miracles have ceased, we're in a rationalistic world, people use reason, traditions are being lost, and people are either living in innocence, which is what we saw in, in uh, Merchant, or in a kind of innocent susceptibility to evil in Othello, that, that people are too innocent. Um, they're not on guard, and it makes them susceptible to what Iago can do. So the, those three works um, were set on the threshold of modernity. I wanted to go back in Anthony and Cleopatra um, to a point before the Christian world. Um, so it was like two bookends. Um, the three pointed us towards our own time. One of them took place before Christ came into the world. And I asked that question, which to me is absolutely crucial. And it, it's one of the reasons I think this is such an important play. What did God do before the coming of Christ? Um, the answer that I'm going to propose is, he wasn't less active then than he is now. I mean, if, I mean, Christ wasn't there, so people wouldn't have known him. They wouldn't have known that aspect of God. He, he makes it clear in what he does in his life. He says, in me you see the Father. And, and we get some sense of the infinite love of the Father because Christ goes to a cross. He, atone, he atones for our sins. He makes it possible for us to return to him. Um, so in Anthony and Cleopatra, we're back before all this took place. And the, um, I said that um, one of the last things I said is, in, in an amazing way, Shakespeare's doing something with what, what we know as the apophatic, this, um, this negative way of knowing, that we, we know by what's not there, or what we can't say about it. One of, the ways we, one of the ways we talk about God is by talking about what we can't know about him. It's called the way of negation, the via negativa, negativia. Um, and it's interesting when we, when we read Shakespeare, how much of what's going on involves absences, withdrawals, vacancies, gaps. I don't think that's an accident. Um, Shakespeare was Catholic, I believe that, people argue about it. Um, he knew something the Romans didn't, so he can go back and present a Roman world just as the Romans did. As a matter of fact, he can present a Roman world the way the modern secular critic would see it. Um, he's, he's not going back to Homer's world, he's not showing the gods interacting with men, they're not coming in and out of anything going on. We don't see gods. But there's lots that he's doing that suggests something's happening at this moment, even if the Romans couldn't see it. And so the, one of the questions that I put to you is, what's he doing with these gaps and um, absences and vacancies and withdrawals? 
What does all that mean? Um, why is he doing it? Because you're not going to get that in a Roman treatment of the play. Shakespeare took this play from Plutarch's lives. If you, if you know anything about Plutarch, you know that he, he lined up all the great Greeks and all the great Romans and set them next to each other to compare and contrast. It's an amazing historical work. So he said Theseus, founder, against Romulus, the founder, you know, Caesar against Alexander, Anthony against um, Demetrius, I can't remember who he said against him, but, um, but his, his major source was Plutarch. It's a narrative, it's expository. Shakespeare's giving us a play, it's concrete. So now we're not getting ideas, we're, act, we're getting an actual rendering of what took place. So the, the characters as they're presented, the language that they use is from him. So he's making us aware of things that a historian could never. Um, some of the major themes that um, here is in the place that we looked at particularly where it's about the city and um, Midsummer Night's Dream too. The city and love, law and justice and love seem to be at odds. Um, the, the, the ends, the interests, put them in conflict with each other. Masculine and feminine are at the center of this play because you've got Anthony representing Rome and Cleopatra, Egypt, and they're bringing two radically different worlds together. In this play, we're watching a Roman Empire just before it reaches the height of its greatness, struggling um, to attain a peace, constantly at war. It, it, it's doing everything it can, in Boethian terms, it's, it's doing everything it can to overcome fortune, to escape the griefs of the past. And every effort they make to escape it only puts them back in the past again. So it's very Christian in that sense. It's doing everything it can to get out from under the past, to answer it, to, to bring a universal city at peace into the world. And every effort it makes, it fails. It keeps putting itself back. Um, and the action. And this is, to me, going to be really important. Remember, according to Aristotle, the plot, whatever the incidences are, this happened, this happened, this happened, they're all an imitation of an action. The visible events imitate an interior action, a movement of spirit. Um, and let me try to make this more dramatic for a second if I can. Most critics, when they read at the really good ones don't. Some of the amazing critics have done really good things on this play. Most critics will look at this and treat Anthony and Cleopatra as a playboy lover kind of guy, great warrior hero, and a whore. She slept with Pompey, she slept and had a child with Caesar. She's having an affair with Anthony. So they have very few good things to say about them. They're just these lovers, these given into their passions and um, it happened to be embroiled in a war and get torn apart and come back together and drink themselves into a stupor and get what they deserve. Um, so on one level, that's what the play seems to say. Um, I'm, I'm going into this asking everybody to be careful right now because what, what we're doing is entering a tragic world again. We've got a world that's presented on the surface 
everything that goes on involves these this world power in um, getting everybody caught up in conflicts where there are betrayals, intrigues, manipulations um, going on all the time. When I read this play, it's impossible for me to read it and not see our world today. I, we can't look at it. I mean, nobody, nobody can say today our world is at peace. We're not even close to peace. Wherever we look on the earth, there's wars going on. Afghanistan, China, North Korea, um, you know, everywhere. It's exactly that way in Anthony and Cleopatra. There's no place in the world that isn't caught up in wars. But the focus of this play is while all these wars are going on, two people are caught up in them. They're both um, sovereign figures. Anthony's one of the triumvirs. Cleopatra's a queen. We're watching them, something happen to them while all of this is going on. And we've entered a tragic world again. If, it, if, it's if it's a tragedy like Othello or Shakespeare's other tragedies, will a recognition take place? If it does take place, what happens then? And how do we look at, in this case, this couple? This, who, who, in terms of the book, without a question, is the greatest warrior in the world. Nobody disputes that. Even Caesar knows it. And Caesar will command, he'll defeat Anthony. Um, Nobody can compare to this man. He's such a great warrior. And Cleopatra's queen. She rules a, um, a good part of the East. So in this case, we've got two sovereign kinds of figures, royal kinds of figures, who will both meet a tragic end. They're going to take their lives at the end. And we're going to be looking at the same situation that we looked at in Othello. How do we look at their suicide? Is it going to hell? I don't, I don't want to bring that up too quickly, but how do we look at their suicide? Um, so, three-quarters of the play is going to confront us with this political world and all of its wars. In the last, in the very last part of it, something happens to tear this couple apart and bring them back together again, and tear them apart and bring them back, and they're both going to take their lives. How do we look at that ending? What is Shakespeare doing? Is he doing something that a Roman historian could never have done, or is he just showing us what the Roman historians would have done, or um, any modern historians. So, that those are that's just a quick overview of what we've been doing. And, um, any questions before we like? I want to I want to go to the play and and look at some of the lines and get us going. Any any questions about? Let me, let me give a plot and then just, because this might help, I just think it's a terribly complicated play. It's, I, there's so, I don't think there's another play that has as many scenes in one act. I think there's 13 and 14 and 3 and 13 and 14 or something like that and 4. It's just a lot of scenes, a lot of back and forth. Um, you know that the play begins, um, or think you know, the play begins just after Antony and Caesar defeated Brutus and Cassius, Cassius. Shakespeare dealt with that action in Julius, I mean, uh, Julius Caesar, the play Julius Caesar. In that play, Julius Caesar was claiming imperial power. People were looking at him as a god. And those who loved the Republic were worried that if Caesar took power, that they would lose everything that the Republic had stood for. The love of freedom, the belief that um, in the value of every single man, as a man. 
For Caesar to claim he was a god or, or for people to attribute a divine power to him gave him a power that men didn't have. And in the, in the name of that, they fought that civil war. Um, Brutus and Cassius killed Caesar and, um, I mean, yeah, Caesar and Octavian, his nephew, great nephew, and Mark Anthony went to war and defeated them. So when this play opens, a civil war has just been put to rest. Anthony and Caesar defeated Brutus and Cassius. So we're already looking back at a war, the civil war that just took place. When this play opens, we're about to enter a number of other civil wars that followed on those. Two of the most important things happened that, to move the, the action forward. One is, Anthony's in, in Egypt with Cleopatra, making love. He's neglecting his duties. Caesar's getting really angry at him because Pompey is gathering forces and threatening Caesar. And he thinks um, Anthony's um, derelict in his duty. And Anthony gets the news that Fovey, his wife, has died. She and Anthony's brother had gone to war, another civil war, and then the two of them joined forces to fight against Caesar because they differed on policies. Um, so um, Caesar just defeated them, and Fulvia is dead. He returns to Rome knowing that he and Caesar are at odds. Caesar just killed his, was responsible for killing his wife and putting to rest that war. And when they do meet, it's a strained meeting. It's clear that they both have grudges against each other. So what we see when they meet is just a continuation of everything that's been going on in Rome for ages. So first thing that happens is Anthony's in Egypt. Um, he and Cleopatra become lovers. He's neglecting his duty. He gets the news that his wife has died, and he goes back. Almost simultaneously with that, they learn that Pompey's gaining power. There's an external threat. So it's in the interest of Rome that Caesar and Anthony patch things up so they can deal with Pompey. Um, in order to avoid another conflict, the triumvirs, Anthony, Caesar, and Lepidus meet with Pompey to see if they can arrange for terms so that they avoid a war. They meet and settle terms um, to help heal the wounds between Caesar and Anthony, um, Agrippa, one of Caesar's soldiers um, encourages Caesar to offer his sister as a bride. So Antony and Octavia marry as if that's going to seal up um, the strains between Caesar and Anthony. They marry, they go off. Um, Antony gets the news soon afterwards that, that Caesar had gone to um, war with Lepidus to defeat Pompey. And after the two of them defeated Pompey, apparently Caesar trumped up these um, faults against Lepidus and has him removed. So Caesar is left in charge of the world. When Antony gets that news, he knows it's time to go to war, and um, they prepare for wars. And then there's three battles. Um, they lose the first one. It's a humiliating, a humiliating defeat for Antony. He tries to defeat Caesar at sea, even though everybody tells him he shouldn't have gone to war at sea. He's furious um, with Cleopatra because um, she turned tail one point in the voyage and really took Anthony out of the war. It's at that point that he says he has lost himself. He, he's embarrassed to stand on the land anymore because he's been this great warrior. They make up. 
um, and the um, and the two Anthony is so angry with what he hears with Caesar that he decides to he, he tries to sue for terms and Caesar won't accept the terms and Anthony gets so angry that he decides to go back into battle again Cleopatra is so proud of him that the two have one last gaudy night that's what it's called one last gaudy night drinking and carousing and sex and and the next day they go to war again and Anthony defeats Caesar um, and they face a battle the next day, Cleopatra's with them again, she turns and they're defeated a third time. It's at, it's at that point that we're reaching the end of the play and I want to I stop there because what happens then is it, it just involves so much that I want to hold on to it. But that's the play, basically. I want to look at some of these gaps and absences of things like this and look at the characters themselves. But any questions about any of, any of that? What's going on in the play or It's very complicated because it really is dealing with um, Rome just before what, what's known as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. By the way, interesting sight. If you, um, when Caesar defeats Anthony and Cleopatra here, the gates of Janus, the gates of war in Rome will be closed um, for centuries. And it'll be known as the period of um, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, universal peace. It's during that peace that Christ comes into the world. And interestingly, they're, they're what are called the five great emperors who follow Caesar. One of them is Marcus Aurelius. You guys seen the movie Gladiator? It's a movie you should see. You really should see it. It's a wonderful, wonderful movie. Marcus Aurelius, the emperor in that movie, was the last of those five emperors because after him, Rome self-destructs. It, it just internally becomes evil, just an evil world. So the peace of Rome didn't last very long. And even during that peace there were constant struggles, but it's known as the, as the Pax Ramona, the peace of Rome. Any questions about all of that? There's a lot of history going on in that. You guys all, I've got a question. This is just out of curiosity because I'm really, has anybody become aware of what I was calling the apophatic in your reading? Did anybody go anywhere with that or do anything with it? This sense that something's going on that the Romans don't see? Shakespeare presents this in a way no, no Roman, no historian could ever do what he does. Anybody aware of anything? It goes to this question that I asked, what did God do before the coming of Christ, before Christ came? Is God not doing anything? Was he not there? Is Christ, if, if, if God and, if the Father and Son and Spirit are together, and we think about the Father, what was he doing before Christ came? Was he and the Son of the Spirit not active? Implicitly, Christ is in the Father. I mean, he will become a human being, but... He was always there, implicitly in some way. Um, what was the Father doing? Was Christ the Son not active? Was the Father not active? Was the Spirit? What were they doing? Is Shakespeare showing us something to make us aware that something was going on that we ordinarily wouldn't see? 
Hmm? God was not doing anything? No, he wasn't trying to show us anything. Shakespeare wasn't trying to show us anything. He wasn't there, see. So God wasn't at work. So God. He's letting Rome dissolve. I mean, there are, there are images 